2: If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show
3: it. Book your trip at san sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds.
0: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn apple card issued by goldman sachs bank usa salt lake city branch subject to credit approval terms apply
2: you're ready for a comeback and with purdue global you can do more than take classes you can take charge of your story of your career of your life earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect it's time your time not just to go back to school but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu.
1: Hello, and
0: welcome to Food Stuff. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum, and today we're talking about
1: absinthe. Yes, absinthe. I'm really excited to talk about this one. How about you? Yeah,
0: yeah. I, I love absinthe. But what about what about you?
1: Yeah, I, um, until recently, I thought it was illegal. Like, like, well, I mean, it had been for a minute. I thought it was still illegal. Oh. And, uh, when I was in France, and I actually was there in 2009. Oh, so it was still illegal so in France at that Oh, it was point. still illegal. Um, I, oh, there you go. I went to some kind of... Castle. It was like a secret castle.
0: What secret you, castle? Yeah, they have those.
1: Apparently, Oh, that's great. You know, France. You know, I can France um, castles everywhere, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I felt so. Ooh, I'm gonna try absinthe in this secret French castle, <laughs> and then um, it was fine. It's it's a sipping drink. That is for sure. Oh, absolutely. And I'm not good at sipping. But.
0: And I do like the I like the uh, traditional preparation that has it a little bit watered
1: down. Right, right, right. Ooh, yeah. And speaking of, when I was in Australia, I asked, I was at a bar, and I asked for water. And the bartender said back to me, agua. And I was like, yeah. You yeah, know, a- agua, sure. Um, and he, Strange for Spanish language to be popping up in Australia, but absolutely. Right. Well, he comes back with uh, a green liquor of some kind. And I said, I'm, I'm fairly certain that's not water. And he said, I thought you meant agua de Bolivia. Which is a drink that is not absinthe, but nobody knew what it was, and we all thought it was absinthe because it's bright green. Oh, it's actually um, coca leaf liquor.
0: Oh, oh, interesting.
1: Yeah. Did you drink it? Yeah. Well, he it, <laughs> he got the prize. He gave it to me for free because of the mistake. I also got water, water though, which was good, and I oh. did drink it. That's just,
0: lovely. Yes. <laughs> okay. So so uh, so absinthe. Yeah. What is it? A uh, good question. What is it? Absinthe is a liquor, uh, uh-huh. traditionally a grape distillate, flavored with wormwood and other herbs, including aniseed and sweet fennel. It tastes sort of like a like a floral licorice, sort of sweet and tingly and bitter and grassy or herbal, just all at the same time. Oh, that's a lot going on right there. It 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 has a lot. It indeed, as we <laughs> as we both found out during this research phase. Yes, has a lot going on. And speaking of having a lot going on, um, there are actually a whole lot of species of, of wormwood. Wormwood is a kind of colloquial term for a whole genus called Artemisia. Um, but the type of wormwood needed to make authentic absinthe is the aptly named Artemisia absythium, more casually known as Grande wormwood. Ooh. Mugwort and tarragon, by the way, are other species of the Artemisia genus, along with another 300 or so plants, many of which are used as herbal remedies or to flavor foods and drinks.
1: Ah. French poet Arthur Rimbaud gave absinthe the nickname Sage Rush of the Glaciers, because wormwood is abundant in Switzerland's Val de Travers area. This is where the absinthe museum is located. Please write in if you've been.
0: Oh, there's a... Oh, man. I love it when people make museums just about booze. Uh... (laughs) Okay, so so although although there's a lot in that location, Grande Wormwood can be grown in lots of places. It's native to temperate regions of Europe, Asia, the Middle East, and North Africa, and also grows well in North America.
1: The word absinthe itself most likely comes from the Greek word absintheon, which means wormwood or undrinkable, which itself is derived from the Latin name for wormwood.
0: Yeah. I'm not sure about that whole undrinkable meaning part. I, I Certainly the term wormwood has long been associated with bitter. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's just an ancient plant name, you know, like a like a label that has come to have figurative meanings, like undrinkable
1: yeah. or bitter. <laughs> when it comes to that bitterness, wormwood is second only to rue. Uh, and this is thanks to a chemical compound called absinthin, and it wasn't nailed down until 1950. The bitterness threshold is so high that if you put one ounce of it into 524 gallons of water, you'd still be able to tell it was there. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's pretty bitter. Absinthe has a bunch of nicknames, most prominently the Green Fairy, but also the Green Witch and the Queen of Poisons. Oh, oh what a! I would love a nickname like that. <laughs> Oh, we can start working on it. Okay, cool. (laughs) Before it earned its um, sordid reputation, it was seen as a muse, a drink for artists, part of the bohemian movement. As such, your cup overfloweth with quotes from (laughs) poets, authors, painters about absinthe. French poet Raoul Ponchon wrote of absinthe, It seems when I drink you, I inhale the young forest soul. Uh Ah, This association between creative types and absinthe was so strong in Paris that instead of happy hour at 5 o'clock, cafés had verte or the green hour. Mm. Picasso frequently featured absinthe in his works, even creating a sculpture called The Glass of Absinthe. Vincent van Gogh painted absinthe in several of his works and drank a whole lot of the green stuff. Allegedly. Some historians think it might have led up to his mental breakdown, the chopping off of his ear, and maybe even played a role in his suicide. Oh. Yeah. Other famous creative types known to enjoy absinthe included, but oh my goodness, not limited to, Baudelaire, (laughs) Oscar Wilde, who wrote, A glass of absinthe is as poetical as anything in the world. And Hemingway, who had this quote about it, It's supposed to rot your brain out, but I don't believe it. It only changes the ideas. (laughs) He was a huge fan. Absinthe pops up in "The Sun Also Rises" and "For Whom the Bell Tolls," and he invented a cocktail that combined champagne and absinthe. He dubbed "Death in the Afternoon." <laughs> I love this cocktail, by the way. Oh, have you had it? Oh, it's yeah, it's delicious. Ooh! In the book, this, the recipe was published in. The recipe says, "Drink three to five of these slowly." So I certainly a headache in the afternoon.
0: <laughs> oh, uh, by, by the way, we forgot to mention at the top of the show. But hey, kids, drink responsibly
1: yes absolutely mm, yes
0: and then of course there is the infamous bohemian uh, Henry de Toulouse who who is reported to have
1: kept vials of absinthe in the top of his walking cane ah. towards the end of his life hmm. oh and also Marilyn Manson has endorsed a brand of absinthe called Mansonth. <laughs> I I looked it up just before coming in here it has won at least one award oh so well good for good for Mansinth <laughs> yes, good for Manth.
0: There is a traditional preparation for drinking absinthe, uh, including all this really pretty old-timey accoutrement called absinthiana, which is also a metal band, um, and, and a built-in watering-down process with actual water, not champagne this oh. time, Hemingway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this, this ritual, and it is called the absinthe ritual, is definitely part of the whole mystique of the liquor. And it goes like this. So you pour one to one and a half ounces of absinthe into a small stemmed glass. You place on top of the glass a flat slotted spoon and then stack a sugar cube on top of that. Then you slowly pour cold water like three to five ounces to taste over the cube, allowing it to melt slowly into the booze below. Super-traditionally, you might drip water down over the spoon using an absinthe fountain, which is this large glass decanter that has multiple spigots at the bottom designed to dispense chilled water one drop at a time. Wow. You stir the sugar in with the spoon, you sip, and enjoy. Yeah. Hypothetically, unless you really hate licorice flavors, and then you probably
1: aren't drinking it at all. Probably not. We, We did do this. We went on a field trip. To a local restaurant nearby and, well, I got absinthe, I don't know, but you did. I think I got an absinthe cocktail. Yeah. Well, there's a place near us that kind of specializes in absinthe and oysters and we went and got both. So it was, it was lovely. But the first time I saw this ritual, I had no idea what was happening.
0: Oh, yeah. I was really confused about it. <laughs> I was. A lot. I was like, what is that fancy punch bowl? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and why does it appear to have vodka in it?
1: <laughs> What's going on here?
0: Uh... Anyway, um, part of the reason for adding water to absinthe slowly like this is that it becomes cloudy in these pretty swirls as the water hits it, and this is called the louche. The term louche, by the way, is a French word that means obscured or clouded or short, sort of like like shady or shifty, mm-hmm. um, by extension, and was borrowed into English in the early 1800s to mean, like, disreputable in an appealingly sordid, rakish, and maybe sort of overly glam kind of way. Oh. And now I'm really wondering if the word lush comes from the word lush.
1: Doesn't seem like that much of a stretch to me. Oh, etymology is really
0: exciting. Um, Scientifically, this cloudiness happens because absinthe contains aniseed, which contains an oily compound called anethyl. Anethyl is soluble in alcohol but not in water, so when water is mixed into absinthe, it beads up, the the anethyl beads up, and those beads disperse themselves evenly throughout the alcohol and water solution. And this isn't, like, all that interesting into and of itself except for the fact that it stays beaded and dispersed in a way that essentially confounds modern physics.
1: Oh, I'm so excited to hear about this.
0: So, oh, I, I mean, you, you basically just heard about it. Like, like researchers have no idea what's going on. But they're looking into ways that this reaction, which is called the Ouzo effect due to the Greek liquor Ouzo's similar anise based properties, could be applied to all sorts of industries from, like, food science to cosmetics to nanotechnology.
1: That's awesome. <sighs> also, I think it might be time for us to break out our slow-motion camera <gasps> and film this. Oh, yes. Oh,
0: man. If there was ever a time for a slow-motion camera...
1: Now's the time.
0: And a time to buy a bottle of absinthe on the company dime.
1: (laughs) We'll answer the call. Don't you worry. (laughs) Despite the rep absinthe has of being dangerous and therefore illegal, it's probably legal where you live. Yeah. In fact, even though a majority of Western countries did ban it in the early 20th century, it may have never really been illegal, technically, (laughs) There were a lot of loopholes that allowed for continued production, distribution, and consumption of absinthe by the 1990s, the largest loophole being most countries do not have a legal definition of absinthe. Ah. Yeah, hmm. meaning you can make absinthe, call it something else, and sell it. No harm, no foul. (laughs) Laws are generally uh, more concerned about the level of tujon, the powerful chemical present in absinthe that usually gets the blame for its... Psychedelic properties. Um, more on that later. But there yeah. really isn't that much in absinthe. No, no, no. You can get around it too by using sage oil tujone versus wormwood tujone, which they do specify, for example. Huh? Yeah. Sa- sage, by the way, has way more tujone than so, wormwood does. <laughs> the FDA here in the U.S. puts tujone in the same category as chocolate or caffeine. The laws regarding distilling and selling of absinthe in the U.S. relaxed a bit in 2007, and the first absinthe distillery in the U.S. since 1912 opened in California that same year. Huh, yeah. You can sell absinthe throughout the European Union, and the rates of Tujon they allow are much higher than what we allow in the U.S. The birthplace of modern absinthe, Switzerland, lifted its absinthe ban in 2005. Now, they only have two laws on the books for it, um, that it must be distilled and not artificially colored. Oh, yeah. More on that later. Yeah. It was illegal in France until 2011. Um, Even though the EU legalized it in 1988, uh, France preserved that part of the law saying, nope, (laughs) you you can do it in the EU, but here in France. But not here. No. No. Um, Distillers could make it and export it, but... That was about it. And due to another French chemical restriction found in fennel, um, until recently, the pure stuff coming out of Switzerland was completely illegal in France. Hmm. But, yeah. Um, Australia has even higher allowances for 2 gym than the EU, and the UK never banned it. Hmm. So they you know, been enjoying it this entire time. <laughs> or not really. It never really caught on there. Yeah, that's true. That's probably why it wasn't worthy of banning. <laughs> um, so that kind of leads us to... History and absence history is rife with scandal, intrigue, art. (laughs) So let's get to that. Yeah. But first, let's get to a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth.
3: dot com.
1: And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. Records show that the ancient Egyptians and Greeks used wormwood, key ingredient in absinthe, medicinally. It appeared in the 1550 BCE Ebers papyrus out of Egypt, though the writings on it could be as old as 3550 BCE. Oh, wow. And Greeks made remedies out of wormwood leaves that were soaked in wine. Some sources also suggest that Hippocrates might have been whipping together a wormwood-flavored wine that he would recommend for flatulence and other digestive <laughs> problems. <laughs> Pliny R. Pliny wrote about wormwood in the first century CE. Of course he did. Uh, he said that it was useful against intestinal worms. According to him, Roman chariot race champions drink wine with wormwood leaves in it as a reminder that even glory could be bitter. Wow, that is so goth. I know, isn't it? <laughs> That's great. In 2nd century CE, Gallen recommended wormwood for swooning and to ease an upset stomach. Swooning. Yeah. Dioscorides wrote about wormwood in his influential medical book from 65 CE, positing that wormwood juice on your arms and legs would keep away fleas and gnats. And if you left wormwood leaves wherever you kept your clothes, it would repel moths, Like an early version of mothballs. I think
0: there is a little bit of camphor in wormwood, in wormwood which is kind of the active ingredient in mothballs. So
1: I guess... I guess it could actually work out. That's so exciting. Yeah. Wormwood is mentioned in the Bible in Revelations. When the seven trumpets sound to herald the end of the world, on the third, wormwood will replace a third of the world's water, and thus whittle away a pretty good chunk of the population. Oh wow, that's yeah. harsh. As early as first century CE, Chinese scholars wrote about Wormwood's efficacy as a malaria treatment. British herbalist John Gerard wrote in fifteen ninety seven. Wormwood voideth away the worms of the guts. And in the 16
0: and 1700s, people would burn wormwood to smoke the bubonic plague out of infected
1: homes. Absent modern history began in 1792 when a retired French doctor by the name of Pierre Ordinaire...
0: Pierre Ordinaire. I
1: love that name. Oh, it
0: rhymes and it... No, that's I great. I know, it's okay.
1: perfect. Relocated to Switzerland to escape the French Revolution... At the time, Wormwood was used to improve childbirth and rheumatism and that whole plague thing. And Ordinaire wanted to find a new way for humans to use it medicinally. Since Wormwood was quite bitter, he got the idea to distill it. Mm. So he did, using a grape spirit as the base and adding macerated star anise, licorice, spinach, coriander, parsley, fennel, and other botanicals, about 15 total. He named his elixir Extractopsynth. When Dr. Ordinaire died, he left his house, a decent amount of money, and his absinthe recipe to his housekeepers, the Henriot sisters. They started selling it, making small batches at a time, under the name Dr. Ordinaire's Absinthe. Enter another Frenchman, Major Daniel Henri Dubide, who, after trying the elixir, wanted the whole operation for himself. He must have made the sisters an offer they couldn't refuse, because they sold him both the recipe and their business. Or... That's one version of the story.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: <laughs> An ad for a bon acceptance out of the local Swiss paper from 1769 suggests that the sisters had been making absinthe way before Dr. Ornaire showed up and that he maybe stole it from them. Uh-huh. Oh. He definitely was a real person that definitely sold absinthe and it definitely originated in the Val de Travers region of Switzerland. But beyond that... Lost yeah. to history. Mysteries of history. History mysteries. <laughs> Whatever the case, Major Dubyde was the one to commercialize absinthe. In 1794, a fellow by the name Ebron-Louis Perenu started to distill it as a drink thing and not a medicine thing. Probably. Uh, people were drinking too much absinthe to keep good records, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> um, Dubyde's daughter, Amelie, married Perenu's son, Henri-Louis, in 1797. And as part of that... Dubide got the absinthe formula from Perinou. If he didn't get it previously from the Henriot sisters. Oh. So, you know, whatever. He got it. He got it. <laughs> and Dubide hired his son-in-law to do the distilling. A year later, in 1798, Dubide hired his own sons and named the business Dubide Père Fils. To avoid paying taxes associated with the French border crossing the French border, Henri-Louis changed his last name, just the spelling really, And up and moved to a French town right on the border. There he set up his own absinthe manufacturing company called Pernoufie, which is almost the same. Yeah. But. (laughs) From there, it made it all over, including the U.S. In 1806, the old absinthe house opened its doors in New Orleans. It was well known for its absinthe cocktail, a mixture of absinthe and sugar water, the absinthe (laughs) frappé, also known as the Green Monster. It was quite the happening spot. In 1812, the pirate Jean Lafitte and Gen- General Andrew Jackson negotiated joining forces in the War of 1812. Lafitte asked for and got pardons for all of his men that participated, and they helped end the War of 1812. Oh, that's a legend anyway. <laughs> uh, also, as with most things in New Orleans, is rumored to be haunted. Ghosts are plenty there. Yeah, still there. It did shut down during Prohibition, but it reopened its doors and is. Open for business. Hmm.
0: Absinthe's reputation for settling the stomach and curing fevers and discouraging insects gave the drink its crucial cultural boost in the 1830s and 40s. During that time, France was attempting to take control of the territory that's now Algeria due to this whole quarrel with the Ottoman Empire and, you know, trade and resources and money reasons. The government sent its military rations of wormwood and absinthe with the thought that it could purify water and help fight illnesses like malaria. When the soldiers returned victorious, they brought with them a serious taste for absinthe
1: and a whole lot of cultural sway. National pride was really high. By 1849, France's 26 absinthe distilleries were making 10 million liters per year. In 1859, Manet debuted his first major painting, The Absinthe Drinker. Debuted makes it sound grander than it was, actually. (laughs) It was widely criticized for his choice of subject matter, an alcoholic fellow with a glass of absinthe, even by his mentor who told him, My poor friend, you are the absinthe drinker. It is you who have lost your moral faculty. Oh, yeah, those are some strong words. <laughs> Later on, in 1876, Degas would face a similar backlash with his painting, L'Absinthe. You've probably seen it. A, a woman stares off forlornly a glass of absinthe on the table. People called it repulsive. Not because it was poorly painted, but because it showcased vice. Ah, oh. Yeah.
0: But part of the popularity of absinthe had nothing to do with absinthe itself, but rather with the French wine industry.
1: The French wine industry. Oh,
0: yeah. In the 1860s through the 90s, a mysterious plague wiped out millions of hectares of French vineyards. The plants were withering on the stalk. No one had any idea what to do. Winemakers were burning entire fields to attempt to contain the disease, but to no avail. And people blamed everything from the laying of iron railways in the soil to the sins of mankind— and they tried everything from volcanic ash from Pompeii to mixtures of, like, whale oil and gasoline. And for decades, nothing worked. Farmers started fleeing to Algeria and South America for fresh starts. Wine costs skyrocketed. The the uh, upper, upper crust of the military turned to whiskey and soda. What? I know. Ridiculous. <sighs> and the proletariat turned to absinthe. Oh. It turned out that this American aphid was to blame, then named Philocera vastatrix, a few of these tiny yellow bugs had hitched a ride over in 1862 on a case of American vines, which are resistant to the insects. The French vines weren't. And the bugs were burrowing into the soil and sucking the vines dry through the roots. Oh, man. And each one of these buggers could could produce over 25 billion descendants per year. Whoa. Uh Upwards of 70% of French vineyards had to be entirely replanted, this time grafting on a varietal of, of wine grape from uh, Texas called St. George to lend the genes that would prevent destruction. But the damage was done, and absinthe was the drink of the children of the revolution. Ah, We'll have to do a whole episode on this wine plague sometime. It's a really fascinating story about scientific fallacies and cultural biases. and like To this day... These bugs are a problem around the world, and Chile is the only major wine producer on the planet that has survived completely unscathed uh, and ungrafted with American vines. Huh. Anyway, uh, yeah, folks were drinking absinthe instead of wine. Yes. Yes. In the 1870s and 80s, the bourgeois got in on the absinthe, absinthe trend as well, and this is where you get the aforementioned um, absintheana from. Uh, famous silversmiths and glassblowers were creating these ever-fancier spoons and fountains to enjoy your absinthe with. Absinthe, therefore, was not only a drink of, of commoners' gutter escapism and of the poor but decadent bohemian, but also of the wealthy's showy extravagance. Some of these implements, by the way, are still kicking on the collector's circuit and cost Thousands of dollars, like, per
1: spoon. Per spoon? Per spoon. Spoon budget, you know. (laughs) I'm I'm working toward that level. (laughs) One day. In France, the amount of absinthe consumed increased by 15 times from 1875 to
0: 1913. And... Meanwhile, the public mood in France was changing. With the Industrial Revolution came the economic and cultural movements that allowed for all of this art and opulence, but there were also more poor working-class folks struggling in cities and lower birth rates because of the higher employment and education of women and all those convention-defying artistic types and a a boost in diagnoses of insanity, probably because of a shift in, in diagnostics. But public officials were concerned. There was this nationalistic concept that the French population was in decline or even degenerating, and people wanted reasons. Enter one Valentine Magnan, a psychiatrist working as the physician in chief at the Saint Anne Asylum. He saw the, the mental and physical health effects of overindulgence in absinthe and he set out to prove that it was worse than regular alcohol. He set up this experiment where he placed – he had two guinea pigs. Okay, he put one in a glass case with an open dish of pure alcohol and uh, the other in a case with an open dish of wormwood oil. Uh, The alcohol guinea pig got all stumbly and drunk. The wormwood guinea pig got kind of excited and then went into seizure. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. but He tried this with other animals, but I'm not going to go through all of them because it's kind of depressing. Um, he would go on to publish a study of 250 alcoholics um, who he said had seizures and hallucinations on absinthe, but not on regular alcohol.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Yeah. He thus defined absinthism as different than alcoholism in 1869. And people took to this definition. Of course, it didn't hurt that the temperance movement was in full swing at this point, And lots of people who were preaching the evils of alcohol were super ready to get on board with the demonization of any alcoholic beverage. Right. In
1: 1890, Marie Corelli published Wormwood, an anti-absinthe book following the downfall of the once respected Gaston thanks to absinthe. It had super subtle anti-absinthe, anti-French sentiments like this one. There are no doubt many causes for the wretchedly low standard of moral responsibility and fine feeling displayed by the Parisians of today. Oh, But I do not hesitate to say that one of those causes is the reckless absinthe mania which pervades all classes, rich and poor alike. No romanticist can exaggerate the terrific reality of the evil. Oh, yeah.
0: Some reports say that in 1903, that compound we mentioned earlier called Tujon was reported by a French doctor to be the key ingredient in the madness of absinthe. But, like, man, I cannot track down a reliable source for this. Uh, It had been isolated, Tujon, from Wormwood back in 1845. And, like, the the turn of the century was around the time that Magnon and his ideological followers latched on to Tujon as the culprit of absinthism, though.
1: yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of trouble tracking down of resources. There's there's a lot of mystique. There is. Oh, and speaking of mystique, oh, this brings us to the absinthe murders. Oh. Hmm.
0: A new podcast coming to you from
1: How Stuff Works. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. Look for it. No, I don't know. Um, towards the end of August in 1905, in a small village in Switzerland, three coffins, one larger and two smaller, stood in the open air. In the larger one was the wife of Jean Lafray, and the smaller two held his daughters, aged four and two years old. Lafray had shot and killed them, but claimed he couldn't recall doing it. Please tell me I haven't done this, he said. The day of his family's murder, he had imbibed a substantial amount. Mm -hmm. Beginning with a pre-dawn shot of absinthe mixed with water that was followed with another shot then six glasses of wine for lunch, then one more glass before he left work, and then on his way home, he got some brandy-laced coffee at a cafe. That's where I thought it ended, but no. (laughs) Then, when he got home, he drank a liter of wine. He and his wife got in a fight, and he grabbed a loaded rifle from the wall and shot her in the head. The oldest daughter came to see what the commotion was, and he shot her, too. Then he took his rifle and went to the room of the youngest daughter and shot her, as well. Some sources wrote that his wife was pregnant, so that's another victim, and then he shot himself in the head, but he survived. The community decided the Absinthe was to blame. Despite all the other... Yeah, it was the Absinthe. Okay, sure, totally. In a public address, the mayor named Absinthe as the direct cause behind a, quote, series of bloody crimes, and it took only a few days for a petition to ban it to garner over 82,000 names. And this was before online petitioning, <coughs> so... Yeah, people were people were up in arms about it. Yeah. And then comes the press, capitalizing on the anti-absinthe sentiment growing throughout Europe, giving it the name, the absinthe murder. One Swiss paper wrote, the premier cause of bloodthirsty crime in this century, absinthe. Oh. Wow. Yeah. Um, when time came for Lomfrey's trial, his lawyers claimed it was an open and shut case of absinthe madness. That defense didn't hold, and he was found guilty on four counts of murder. On his third day in jail, L'Enfray hung himself. The Canton, which is um, sort of a district or territory, outlawed absinthe a month later, and a neighboring Canton that suffered its own absinthe murder did the same soon after. By 1910, it was illegal in all of Switzerland, as well as the Netherlands and Belgium, which had outlawed it in 1905. France... Wasn't slowing down, though, <laughs> going through about 36 million liters of absinthe per year in 1910. The U.S. Pure Food Board banned it in 1912 with these words, One of the worst enemies of man. Huh. And if we can keep the people of the United States from becoming slaves to this demon, we will do it. Huh. Wow. I feel like we need a lot of, like, like gavel noises in the I back know, of I know. We this. should get a gavel. It's a very
0: fist-poundy kind of episode.
1: It is. France did go on to ban it in 1915. The government blamed it for alcoholism in the country and for the French army. Up to 20 percent of men failed the army's health test. So they were like, it's time to shape up and stop drinking this absent stuff.
0: Oh, yeah. And that ban, as we said, wasn't lifted in France until 2011. And even then, it was basically under economic pressure provided by Switzerland having lifted that ban in 2005 and the U.S. in 2007. Yeah. But this brings us to the appertaining question. Was there really a difference and a danger between absinthe drunk and good old regular drunk? Ooh. We'll get into that after we get into one last break for a word from our sponsors.
1: This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies.
0: And we're back. Thank you, sponsors. So, what's the deal with all this absinthe madness? Does it really cause hallucinations? Will it drive you insane? Will it? No. Oh. (laughs) Okay. The absinthe that was being sold in the mid-1800s was around 110 to 140 proof. That's like 55 to 70 percent alcohol by volume. Your average liquor, by the way, like gin or whiskey or vodka today is about 80 to 90 proof or about 40 to 45 percent alcohol by volume, mm-hmm. which means that drink for drink, people were mostly just getting like drank. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And maybe lightly poisoned by cheaply distilled alcohol base, um, especially as the wine plague meant that good quality grape distillate became scarce and producers turned to cheap stuff like beets and grains and cheap manufacturing methods that might have led to adulterants like copper sulfate or chloride getting bottled in along with the booze. Uh, You know, same as the problem with cheap gin in England around the same period. Yeah,
1: that's what this was reminding me of.
0: Totally. There is a myth that these absinthe were made with more wormwood and thus contained more tujone than modern absinthe. But that conclusion was based in bad science. Contemporary absinthe contained as much or less tujone as modern stuff does. And laws, current laws, do say that absinthe must contain less than 10 milligrams of tujone per liter of alcohol. In the U.S., yes. Yeah, uh, in the EU, it's more like 35 milligrams. But that doesn't really matter anyway. Oh. A research in the mid-20th century revealed that although Tujon and the active ingredient in cannabis, THC, have a similar molecular structure, Tujon doesn't trigger cannabinoid receptors the way that THC does. It does, however, Tujon, inhibit a process in the brain, which, in very large doses, means that it can cause muscle spasms and convulsions. But really, like, you'd have to be consuming pure Wormwood oil to get this effect. The amount in absinthe, you, you'd pass out a long time before you could get poisoned by right. the two-zone.
1: <laughs> right.
0: So, yeah, drunkenness. Yeah. I mean,
1: I guess if you're getting there much faster than you're used to on anything else. I mean, pretty much d- d- Drunk,
0: drunkenness, and they were they were high on life.
1: <laughs> I'm sure they weren't high on anything else.
0: Though. Oh, yeah, absolutely not.
1: <laughs> no way.
0: Um. Oh, and, and uh, other, other science note, absinthe is made by taking um, a high-proof, colorless, flavorless alcohol and then redistilling it with a steam bag or maceration of your botanicals, again, just like gin. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, traditionally, you get the color and a little bit of extra flavor in absinthe by soaking another bag of botanicals in that distillate afterward. The green coloration of absinthe was from chlorophyll from the herb's leaves due to that second uh, maceration. Uh-huh. The chlorophyll molecules would break down when exposed to sunlight, though, which is part of why absinthe was bottled in those uh, green or sort of cloudy or sort of cloudy green bottles. Yeah. Also, they're just pretty. Yeah. The color today may be artificial as it is more expensive to do that final maceration soak than it is to just, you know, toss in some food coloring. Mm-hmm. But as we said at the top of the episode, uh, that is illegal to be called absinthe in yes. some, some places like Switzerland.
1: Yeah. Absinthe just has this whole... Mystique to it. That's a good word. Yeah. Um, it is beautiful. It is. And I think I, um the first time I heard of it, it was, I can't believe this is the second time we're going to mention Moulin Rouge <laughs> on food stuff. <laughs> the beginning of food stuff, like Awan McGregor goes to Paris and he drinks absinthe and he sees the Green Fairy. Or the beginning
0: of Moulin Rouge, not the beginning of food stuff.
1: Yes. Yes. <laughs> but- if that's how food stuff began for you. Mm, check maybe, your absence. Maybe maybe there is a yeah, maybe there is a green fairy at play. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just it's got this kind of fascinating it has such a, a feel to it that we've we put on it, but I, I think it's really really interesting.
0: It's all it's all about that that milky swirl for me. It's yeah. it's so pearlescent and just pretty to look at. Yeah. I'm like it is magic. It's nanotechnology.
1: That is awesome. Yeah. So that's absent. Yeah. Yay. Whew. And it brings us to listener mail. Listener mail. Yay. Uh, wanted to start off by thanking everybody who sent us something um, over the holidays. Both Lauren and I were out on holiday, <laughs> or I actually was working. You were, but I it was a fun. I was out nonetheless, and so we didn't have time to like individually. Mention everybody, but, um, but thank
0: you. You yes, sent us treats you. and books and beautiful things, and it's been so wonderful receiving those, and we appreciate it so much.
1: We really do. We are always so, like it's, thrilled. Yeah, to it's, receive something. It can
0: it can be really. I, I I hope it sounds like fun when we when we come into the studio, but it can be really grindy day to day to get through some of this stuff. So it's it's such a lovely break. Thank you. Yes.
1: So the first letter we shall be reading is from Cindy, who wrote, I just listened to the episodes on fad diets, and the first thing that popped into my brain when you mentioned that the grapefruit is still a worldwide symbol of dieting was, hey, I'm pretty sure that's mentioned in one of the Harry Potter books. Ah! Yes, I am that level of HP geek. So am I. Oh, yeah. Early in the fourth book, Goblet of Fire, while Harry is still with the Dursleys, it is mentioned that Dudley has to go on a diet, so the rest of them have to as well. What did Aunt Petunia serve for breakfast that morning? Grapefruit wedges. Hmm. I think it's a little crazy how these things can become a lasting symbol or stereotype of a concept. On an unrelated note, I also have a funny story about chocolate in my family. I don't remember if it was mentioned in the episode or if it was a listener mail, but the story about the girl whose family member always told her she was allergic to chocolate sparked a funny memory in my life. When we were kids, my older sister and I both had blonde hair and blue eyes, while my younger sister had dark brown hair and eyes. Obviously, this made her stand out a bit in the group. To make her feel better about this, my grandmother would, and still does sometimes, tell my little sister that having dark hair and eyes meant that she just had to eat lots of chocolate or her eyes and hair would start to fade. Oh. She would even do checks to see if my sister needed another Hershey's miniature. To this day, she's 23 now, she is by far the biggest chocoholic of the family, and when you tease her about it, she will sometimes tell you jokingly that she needs it for her eyes. Oh, that's a beautiful story. (laughs) That
0: is. Oh, that's so sweet. Mm -hmm. Um, Alvin wrote in about our fad diet episode. I'm inspired to write to you about something that you mentioned that seemed puzzling to you, Lord Byron and his vinegar-based diet. George Gordon Byron, later Lord Byron, an exemplar of Regency fashion and culture was a fat child, and he had a limp. According to an article from the UK's The Guardian newspaper profiling a 2011 documentary by the amazing Lucy Worsley that mentions Byron, there are still ledgers recording Byron's weight, and the 5-foot-8-inch, or about 1.7-meter, 18-year-old Byron weighs in at a hefty 13 stone 12 pounds, or 88 kilograms, which the program makers are classing as Borderline obese because he had his boots on. (laughs) Byron went to great efforts to lose his weight, such as playing cricket with seven waistcoats and a greatcoat on and going to steam rooms to sweat it off. And to be fair, Worsley said, he was down to nine stone, 11 pounds when he was 23. Byron also suffered from a problem foot from childhood, resulting in a lifelong limp. And in case you're wondering, 13 stone is about 182 pounds. So at 18, Byron, at five foot, eight inches, weighed about 194 pounds. Ah. Besides being a poster child for Regency Dandies, Lord Byron, because of his childhood, was a prime mark for fad diets. And now you know.
1: Well, thank you, Alvin.
0: Knowing is half the battle.
1: It is. I, I was kind of surprised that uh, the whole sweating it out thing was around. Oh, yeah. Back then. Oh, forever and ever. It's just always been there. Well, thanks to both of them for writing in. If you would like to write to us, you can do so. Our email is foodstuff at howstuffworks.com. We're
0: also on social media. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at foodstuffhsw. You can also find us on Instagram at foodstuff. We would love to hear from you. Uh, Thanks so much to our amazing producer, Dylan Fagan.
1: Mm -hmm. He is not absent. He is always present. (laughs) I don't know. I always try to come up with a dumb... (laughs) Like riff on his name and i never succeed. No, I think think that works. Let's go with it. Okay. Yeah. Well, too late now. (laughs) Uh, Thank you to y'all
0: for listening, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way.
1: This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth.
2: 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard hitting episode today, a lot of controversy.